You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist, and I'm here, as always, with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. Hey, guys. Hey, Evan. What's up, guys? Aaron, Aaron's sitting there uh, looking at his phone. It's really hot. There's no phones. Your phone is not going to help you with that. Turn off your phone. Okay, my phone's off. No phones in here. Fucking A. Max, who did you talk to this week? I cheated a little bit this week, and I did not talk to someone who traditionally writes or edits long magazine articles. I interviewed um, Marguerite Fox, who sometimes writes long-ish obituaries for the New York Times. She also has a book out that's a very long nonfiction book, but mostly I really just wanted to talk to her about obituary writing. So I use this podcast as an excuse to talk to someone I just really Using want to talk to. Using the podcast for your own ends. Totally. But she's, I take it, she's written those uh, ones that get passed around, those crazy obits. <laughs> she's the, the writer of the about. ones that get passed around. And uh, it turns out, man, if, she's been doing this for like eight years. And if you write obits for eight years, you have done some thinking about uh, death and life. And it got kind of real. She's pretty amazing. If uh, you see someone passing around a newsletter, it might be from Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. They are our sponsor this week. We thank them for the support. Here's Max and Marguerite. Marguerite, thank you very much for, uh, for sitting down with me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're hosting me, too. This is nice. We, we are at the New York Times, as you- opposed to my... Uh, crappy little conference room in Brooklyn. That's right. You are in my house. My house, my rules. <laughs> Everything is turned. The tables have turned. You got it. All right. You've been writing obituaries for the New York Times for eight years. Probably closer to nine at this point. And uh, Labor Day will be nine years. Eight and change. Eight and change later. What makes for a good obit? What are you looking for? Narrative. One of the most compelling things about writing obits, and it kind of blows my mind that writers and editors didn't understand this until maybe 10 or 15 years ago, because as we know, and as anyone of our parents' age knows, obits were kind of the bastard stepchild of American journalism. Um, It was a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you were a bad writer that messed up on another part of the paper, they sent you to obits. So needless to say, the obit page wound up being very badly written year in and year out. Happily, all that has changed, and I truly mean it when I say obits are 
the best gig in American journalism. The reason is simple. They have a built-in narrative arc. If you think of the structure of any obit in any newspaper, the writer is charged with taking his or her subject from the cradle to the grave. You say when they were born. You say up in the lead when they died. And it's all the other really cool intermediate stuff in between, how a person got from A to B to C all the way down to Z in his or her life. That gives them narrative structure that really outdoes any other genre in the paper. So you're looking for great stories. How much do you know about the people you decide to write about before you start? How do you know that it's going to be a great story? You don't always know, and the obit writer is the ultimate generalist, at least the way we work at the Times, where we have about five staff writers, my colleagues uh, Bruce Weber, Doug Martin, Paul Vitello, uh, Bob McFadden, and I are assigned. McFadden actually does advance obits, which is another kettle of fish that we can talk about. I would like to, But the rest of us are on call to come off the bench at a moment's notice and do daily obits on deadline, and they can be on anything under the sun. I have literally done the president of Estonia, and I can guarantee you I knew nothing about Estonian politics going in. I've done the inventor of the crash test dummy, the inventor of the Frisbee, the inventor of Etch-a-Sketch. I've done a lot of inventors. <laughs> uh, an underwater cartographer and the inventor of the Magic Fingers vibrating bed. So there is no way that even the most erudite person in the world is going to know about most of these figures, much less all. So you get the inventor of the Magic Fingers bed uh, at 9 a.m. in the morning or whenever you get that assignment. What do you do next? How do you start reporting this life that has ended? I mean, it, these are kind of like the ultimate write-arounds, right? Well, you're lucky if you get them at the morning. We generally come in happily. We don't come in till 11, so you get to sleep late if you're a slug like me. That It's the dream job. But you're lucky if you get an assignment at 11 or even at 11.30 because, of course, people can die any time. And as <laughs> one of my editors who is now retired used to say, shaking her head ruefully, they only ever die after 4 p.m. And when deadline is at 6 p.m., that can make for a very hairy afternoon and early evening. And that has happened to all of us many a time. So you get your story ideally at 11 or 12. And thank goodness for the internet and online databases. I have to say, although I'm old enough to still have my electric typewriter, which was the standard issue middle-class high school graduation present when I was going up. I really don't know how anyone did this kind of research in a newsroom on deadline before the net. So we... Yeah, maybe it's not just that uh, the writing has gotten better, but the internet came around. The internet came around, and so uh, my first stop is always online databases, both of old time stories. And of course, obits is the most retrospective genre in the paper. Uh, Somebody who dies in his bed at the ripe old age of 95 or 100 is probably going to have done the stuff that makes him or her, her newsworthy for our pages 40, 50, 60 years ago. So we use ProQuest, which uh, has all of the stories in the New York Times starting from 
our founding in 1851. We use Nexus for the out-of-town papers. We use reliable uh, sources online trying to give unreliable websites a suitably wide berth. <laughs> and we still also do it the old-fashioned way where several times a day our departmental clerk makes a trip to the Times Morgue, which is actually in a building down the block, and brings ma- back these biographical files of yellowed, crumbling clippings that in the days before electronic databases, we had a whole morgue staff that would routinely clip and add to every single day. So how often do you pick up the phone and and call someone? That's also the other part of the job. So all of these things have to take place more or less simultaneously. You are scouring the clips, printing out the stories you want to read, speed reading them, marking the quotes you want to use, marking the things you want to double check or follow up on. At the same time, you need to, as we say, put a top on the story. You need to get the who, what, where, when, and why that is the real news value of an obit. You know, so-and-so died, when did he die, where, etc. And so, again, if you are lucky, you will have gotten an email or a fax from the family. And if they remember to do it, there will be the name and phone number of a family member or family friend or family spokesman whom we can contact. Often, and this is quite understandable, bereaved families, they're stressed, they're grieving, they're exhausted. They forget to put the name of a contact. So often you spend precious hours on deadline working public records databases, doing the work of a detective, just trying to find the name and phone number of an appropriate person to call. So you're doing all of this stuff simultaneously. It's kind of the ultimate multitasking beat. Part of the reason I want to talk to you, part of the reason I love your stuff so much is is it's, it's filled with these wonderful details, like the ultimate telling details. You gotta find these little things that reveal an entire life. What are you looking for in those details? Well, you know them when you see them. So it was, which Supreme Court justice was it? Potter Stewart, who said famously of pornography, my paraphrase, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And of course, we all wondered, what did he see and how did he know? Um, A marvelous quotation from the source will leap out. And of course, obits have the odd distinction of Uh, being one of the, probably the only kind of story in in the paper where we can't interview the person about whom we're writing. I mean, if you think about it, an obit is basically an extended profile, but with this one crucial distinction or one crucial omission. So... Right. It's like uh, Frank Sinatra has a cold, except you have no chance of getting him. Right. Even less chance of getting him than that, because at least Frank Sinatra was alive, even though he was being standoffish in that famous story. Right. Uh, So we try to give the subjects their voice through old clippings. You know, you go back and find profiles of them that were written during their lifetime, interviews they gave during their lifetime. And a lot of the people about whom we write are arts figures, writers themselves. So they're usually super articulate, which is wonderful for us. So those are the kind of nuggets we pull out. How do you think about the openers? What's important to get in that first paragraph or two? Because it feels to me like they're pretty consistent. So do you have 
a sort of a, a model or a formula you're looking for in the beginning of a story? Well, we use two different kinds of leads in stories now, and this is a new development that my boss, the Obits editor, Bill McDonald, instituted a few years ago, where the exception case, but maybe oh, 10 to 20 percent of the time, we'll do these kind of more magazine-like feature leads. And we tend to do those for weekend pieces, pieces that have a more featurey angle, uh, pieces about these sort of unsung heroes, the backstage players about whom one never may have heard, but somehow they, they managed to put a wrinkle in the social fabric. Far more often, we use the standard 5W straight-ahead news lead, which frankly is one reason obits were so boring for so long, because if you think about it, an obit lead sags under the weight of this groaning boilerplate, uh, the person's name, where he died, when he died, how old he was, what he died of, and so on. So writing a good lead, giving space to all that boilerplate and still finding something else to say is like writing a haiku. It's both very frustrating but very satisfying when you do it because the standard obit lead construction is John Doe, comma, who, blah, 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 comma, died. And so you basically have not even a sentence. You have a phrase between those two commas to encapsulate this guy's whole life. One of the things I was very, I'm very often asked in this job, and it was one of the things I kind of worried about when I started, was people ask me, oh, you write obits, you're dealing with death every day. Don't you find it depressing? And I wondered if I would when I started the job in 2004. I very quickly learned to my great joy that it was almost never depressing because 99% of the time we're writing about these interesting accomplished people that died in their beds at a ripe old age. They had a good long life. And maybe... 2% of the story is about the actual death. It's the stuff you get out of the way in a straight news lead. And the other 98% is this pure narrative about this really interesting life. What has doing that day in and day out 100 times a year taught you about life? Well, you do have kind of a weird taxonomic take on the world. Is that for me, and I suspect for my colleagues too, the entire world is basically divided up into two ca categories only, the dead and the pre-dead. <laughs> and that's it. It's a point that's difficult to get across. I suspect nobody believes me, but if they did my job for even six weeks, they would truly accept it when I say it's obits are very rarely about death. It's really about the life. So you don't wind up developing these cosmic metaphysical theories because you're really not writing about that stuff by and large. Whose lives have stuck with you? I mean, maybe they all blend into one major meta-obit, but are there, are there particular people that you've written about that have stuck with you? Well, there are some obits that I'm particularly fond of. One for a man whom we all grew up with, uh, Maurice Sendak, who died about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I think. And that was one of the kinds of obits that are written in advance. Uh, as people may know, the Times, like most major papers, has a vast stockpile 
of obits that, strange as it sounds, are actually written in advance, obviously all but the top, all but the who, what, when, where, and why of the death, because the death hasn't happened yet. The reason we do it, if you've ever wondered how some major political figure drops dead and seemingly in a matter of hours, a newspaper is able to get a 10,000-word obit coming off the presses or now going onto the internet, that's how. It's that the obit might have been written a month before, a couple of years before. We try to update them constantly. Uh, And then ideally for these long complicated obits that you don't want to get stuck having to write on deadline, all you have to do when the time comes, and in fact I did one one of these today just before you and I met, all you have to do is put that lead paragraph in place. Do you think any differently about those pieces than the ones that you're doing after someone has died? Well, the joke around obits is you often hear that someone is not doing well or, you know, we all have a slightly morbid cast when we watch uh, news programs or talk shows on television and a guest comes on and we think, gee, you know, he looks like he's getting on in years. Guy's looking kind of grim. Um and for whatever reason, your your editors come over and say, I need you to drop everything and do a quick advance for us on so-and-so. And you do an advance for us on so-and-so, and you think, hmm, this is pretty good. You know, wonder when this is going to get in the paper. And invariably, the minute you file that advance, so-and-so lives another 20 years without <laughs> fail. Have you ever met anyone that you've written an obit for? Very occasionally I've had to write the you know quick and dirty daily obits that are 90% of our job. Occasionally in my work as a journalist in previous years, I will have interviewed that person, which is extremely useful because then you're in the situation that happens only rarely on our beat of writing about someone whose work you know well and whom you actually can describe because you've met that person. It doesn't happen often. Um, We do also, where possible, interview the subjects of our advance obits. This was a tradition tradition practiced by the great Alden Whitman, who was a Times obit writer at mid-century in the 50s and 60s. And he became famous for sitting down with people while they were alive. He would say, you have our word of honor that anything you say will be completely embargoed during your lifetime. And so knowing that they had that guarantee, people would be very, very candid with him. And then when they died, there would be these long, rich, you know, colorful, detailed, extraordinary stories in the paper under Whitman's byline. Travel budgets are tight at companies all over. Newspapers are no exception. So we can't sit down with them in person in the same way. Um, We do call them up from time to time. And that, I have to say, is a very weird social situation. (laughs) Yeah. How do you you navigate that? There is no Emily Post for that because if you you sort of deconstruct the, the germ of the message of what you're saying, the translation is, hello. We've never met, but I know you're going to die, possibly soon. I would like to say all sorts of possibly intimate things about your life and put them where a million people can see them. So please talk to me now. It's absolutely socially bizarre. So you sort of have to feel the person out 
take it on a case-by-case basis. Sometimes you won't call them directly because you don't want to sound like the angel of death hovering. It's, it just isn't done. It's not cricket. And um, it may not be good for you as a journalist because it may be off-putting. You don't want to alienate your source before you've even begun. So you may want to approach people around the source, either a family member or if it's someone in public life, a publicist, spokesman, that sort of thing. And you say, uh, one of my colleagues who's now retired, Dennis Hevesy, who's the nicest, gentlest guy you could ever want to meet, but a good newsman for over 40 years. He worked out really good language that I have since stolen and now use. He says, we're doing an advance obit on so-and-so. Heavy emphasis on the word advance. <laughs> and that seems to reassure people. Right. That, that, that loosens them up a little bit. When you've had that kind of conversation with someone where they've uh, been able to say things and reveal things that they know will never be heard until they're dead, um, when you get to know someone on that level uh, and then they do die, do you feel like, um, how do you feel? I can't answer that question yet because as it happens, none of the obits for people to whom I've actually spoken have run. It really does seem to be the guarantee of eternal life. <laughs> and what about when, with, with those advanced ones where you've done Maybe you haven't talked to the person, but you've done the, the, the reporting and, and you've found those details and you feel like you've uh, crafted that narrative of their life. Well, you, it teaches you patience because I have to say, uh, with no wish to sound ghoulish, you know, we try to write all of our obits uh, as beautifully as we can. And one of the thrilling things about The Beat now is it is truly the most writerly section on the paper. Um, so if you file an advance obit that you may have spent a week working on, which is an enormous amount of time spent on one piece for a daily newspaper, and it has a lot of nice writing in it that you've done, and you think, this is pretty good, you push the button to file it, and one little part of you against your will thinks, gee, I wish that person would hurry up and you know what, because <laughs> I'd like to see this story in the paper. And you can't think that way. They're going to live another 20 years, guaranteed, so it teaches you patience. You've cracked a bunch of jokes already in, in our conversation, and that's another thing that struck me reading all these obits that you've done, and part of why I want to talk to you is they're funny. And, you know, when I was thinking about it, that's also, like, what makes for a great eulogy. You know, you want... Uh, people to laugh in those moments. How, how does humor play into what you do? Well, again, you have to take it on a case-by-case basis because, of course, there are you never know what story you're going to get on any given day. And there are some stories that are about subjects so deeply serious you would never want to introduce humor. It would be just inappropriate journalistically, and it would be, from a writing standpoint, um, a really wrong-headed use of tone. Uh, for instance, I did a story about a year ago on a very moving story on a Vietnamese dissident poet that because he kept writing poetry that ran afoul of the government, spent well over half his life, and he lived to old age, he spent well over half his life in 
Vietnamese prisons in abysmal conditions. So there, of course, you just tell the story straight. There's no way you're going to put a joke in a story like that. So what I say is nine out of ten stories I want to make the reader laugh, and the tenth one I want to make the reader cry. But you're right. One of the great things about Obits now is we've gotten over this sort of weepy, pseudo-reverential Victorian prose that one still sees in Obits in small-town papers from time to time. He touched the lives of everyone he ever knew. He died surrounded by his adoring family. You know, you'd think that everyone that got an Obit in the paper was some kind of saint. Happily, we're able to use humor where appropriate, and readers are still kind of wrapping their minds around the idea. One of the most charming emails I ever got was, oh, maybe five or six years ago from a reader who had read a a fun obit I did on a man named Cy Wexler who made all of these um, industrial and educational films that all of the baby boomers grew up Uh, seeing in their classrooms, films like Squeak the Squirrel and stuff like that. And so we had a lot of fun with this obit. I got this marvelous email from a reader saying, I read your obit of Mr. Wexler on the train on my morning commute from Westchester, and I laughed out loud. And then I felt really funny about it. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anyone that you've written about that you wish you could have met? There was a marvelous man uh, on whom we did a page one obit a couple of years ago, and one of these unsung heroes that obit writers love to write about best of all, these men and women you've never heard of, but because they turned a corner, you know, a different way going to work one day in 1942, they met someone, did something, had an idea, made an invention that changed the world. And one such person was a wonderful man, a Holocaust survivor, as it happens, named his his anglicized name in this country was Leslie Buck. He was the executive of a paper cup company. You know, not some someone who would be newsworthy by the time standards of kind of uh, being a world-level player. But what did Leslie Buck do? He designed the f- iconic blue and white Greek-themed coffee cup from which generations of New Yorkers drank their coffee. And you still, if you look on reruns of Kojak, reruns of Law and Order, the cops are all drinking coffee out of this cup. It was what Greek diners served their coffee in for years. And we got so much mail and so many reader comments on the website. From It really struck a chord. Uh, People would say things like, I had to move overseas for my job. I went into a store one day and saw a ceramic version of this cup and started crying. It just meant New York. It meant home for so many people. Uh, that's one of my all-time favorite pieces. I have all these questions written down about, like, sadness and, you know, <laughs> uh, do you get emotional when you write these things and stuff, but it seems like you really enjoy it. Um, I wonder if uh, writing about all of these people who have led these incredible lives has prompted you to change how you live your life at all. I uh, can't honestly say that it has, partly because I'm so busy writing about their lives. So if I wanted to change my life in whatever direction, 
I'm not sure where I would find the time to do it. You know, some somewhere in the interstices of all of these other people whom I get to know in the course of a year. But I do want to say one thing about sadness because it's true that obits are delightful and far more so than one might think on the surface. But there are not every piece is a laugh riot, nor should it be. And there are pieces that make one kind of tear up. Um, young deaths are very painful, especially young suicides. Now, by and large, most people who die young simply won't have lived enough years on earth to have had the level of achievement that we look for in judging newsworthiness for a time's obit, but sometimes they do. Um, most of my suicides, sadly, are writers and Almost all of those writers are poets. Um, it's you know it's hardly a big enough st- sample to be statistically meaningful. But of the hundred, hundred ten obits I do a year, maybe one a year will be a suicide. And so I've had about probably a dozen or so. Almost all poets uh, in the time I've been doing it, and those. Uh, when you have to just do your routine reporting and call the family of someone who's just killed themselves, those just rip your guts out. Oh, I'm sure. Almost all poets. That's Poetry is taking a bad rap on this podcast a little bit, but that's... Uh... <laughs> well, I had this fantasy that when something like this, I thought, man, if I were an insurance company, poets would be a really bad risk, and I would never write a policy <laughs> for a poet. And then I thought, well... In the old days, if you were a poet and you wanted insurance, you could go to Wallace Stevens and he would write you a policy because he was an insurance man by day. Now I don't know what you do. (laughs) How did you get started doing this? How did you get started writing obituaries? Purely by accident. The child has yet to be born who comes home from first grade clutching a composition that says, when I grow up, I want to write obituaries. <laughs> it, it's not a career you plan for, although I, I truly feel it was the job I was born to do. I came to the Times almost 20 years ago and spent my first 10 years as a copy editor on the Times Sunday Book Review. And it was a great job, lovely people, was around books all day. But after 10 years, I started to get a little depressed thinking, at the end of the day, all they're going to put on my tombstone, I wouldn't even have an obit, but all they're going to put in my epitaph was, she changed 100,000 commas into semicolons. And it just wasn't quite intellectually engaging enough for me. So I started casting around for other sections of the paper that I could write for freelance. Uh, That's one of the great advantages of working anywhere in the Times newsrooms. You can just call up a colleague and say, can I interest you in a piece on such and such? And I found out about this whole world of advanced obituaries where the need is so intense, you can never account for all of the pre-dead important people in the world. So whoever the obits editor is at any given moment has to harness the talents of as many newsroom colleagues as he can. I started writing advanced obits freelance. I started doing some of the daily ones that They weren't so urgent that they had to be done on daily deadlines so I could do them after work on my own time. They run them a few days later. And so I slowly but surely built up a track record of all things, 
writing obits. And in 2004, when someone from the obit staff retired, they advertised the job, and I got it. Been there ever since. How do you and your colleagues interact with the sort of day-to-day of the paper? I mean, you're filing stories, um, but how does what you do interact with the daily news cycle? Well, what we do by definition is responsive to the news cycle because um, the way we get our assignments, um, assignments can come from several different sources. Families let us know. They fax us. They email us. They telephone us to let us know about a death. And, of course, we it's, it's almost like running a very selective college. We get many more applications for admission than we have the space to Do people include. ever get mad that they're not included? All the time. Really? And um, one of – it's this is fortunately on the editors. The editors are the ones who sift through the submissions every day. They monitor the wires. They monitor the out-of-town papers. Uh, they monitor the foreign press. Uh, we'll have they monitor TV and, of course, now the web. So there are all sorts of ways of hearing about a death. Some of them obviously are a no-brainer. If a major movie star dies, a major political figure dies, odds are we'll have an advancer for that person because right. he or she is so important. But it's the vast majority of sort of more ordinary people who have to be weighed? Do they meet our criteria for newsworthiness? Right. And especially... Did, did they design the coffee cup? Right, exactly. And one of the most painful parts of our editor's job is to have to tell families, in effect, we know your husband, father, brother was a very worthy person, but by our very narrow construction, he wasn't a newsworthy person. And some families accept it. Some families get upset. It's it's an unfortunate but necessary part of the job. So uh, there's another thing that we should talk about, which is that you have a new book. Um, why, why don't you tell us about it a little bit? The Riddle of the Labyrinth, The Quest to Crack an Ancient Code. It's a narrative nonfiction book that is the true story of the race to decipher a mysterious ancient script from the Aegean Bronze Age called Linear B. It was dug up on clay tablets on Crete in 1900 amid the ruins of a lavish, sprawling, beautiful Bronze Age palace. It had been scratched, inscribed in wet clay by royal scribes in about 1450 B.C. Uh, It was the most bewildering script ever seen. It looked like nothing ever seen. It's all these strange little pictures of horses' heads and swords and chariots, things that look like shirt buttons and philodendron leaves. Not only did no one know what these tablets said, no one even knew what language they were written in. So it's the ultimate exercise in code-breaking, an unknown language written in an unknown script. So how do you ever find your way as a decipherer into a closed system like that? Right. And it was basically broken by a combination of two people who were separated by an ocean. Tell us about them. That's right. And this book dovetails with my 
work in obits in a kind of interesting way. As yeah. I said, in obits, the obit writer's greatest joy is writing about these unsung heroes who, although you've never heard of them, have managed quietly to change the world. And little did I know when I started work on The Riddle of the Labyrinth that I would find exactly the same thing, magnified a thousand times. The Linear B was dug up in 1900 and not deciphered for half a century. One day in 1952, it was deciphered seemingly in a single stroke of inspiration, not by a scholar, but by a brilliant amateur, an English architect named Michael Ventris, who was young. He was not even 30 when he did this decipherment, but he'd been obsessed with the tablets since he was a schoolboy and had this kind of native genius for languages with which some people are born. Now, that story was exciting enough. It also had, speaking of obits, a rather unhappy twist. Uh, In 1956, just four years after solving the riddle of Linear B, Michael Ventris died in a rather sudden, swift, and bewildering car crash that may or may not have been suicide. He was only 34. So I started my research thinking I'll tell that story, which is... Tell tell his story. His story. Not well known to Americans at all. It's kind of a British triumphal narrative, but Americans don't know it. Whoever was on the uh, editor desk of the obit desk back then didn't even write about it in the Times, right? We didn't run an obit for him when he died, which is is shocking to me now. But I think um, nobody really cared back then about making the obit page as good as it could be. But little did I know when I started my research that there was this brilliant, vital, unsung heroine right here in New York City, an American woman named Alice Elizabeth Kober, who was an overworked, underpaid professor of classics at Brooklyn College, who, working in the 1930s and 40s at night at her dining table in Flatbush with no money, no institutional support, and no computers, basically methodically analyzed at great length over a period of thousands and thousands of hours methodically analyzed this tangle of bewildering symbols that was the Linear B script. She brought the decipherment closer to fruition than anyone before her, and it is widely accepted now that had she herself not died very young in 1950, two years before Ventress cracked the code, she might well have deciphered Linear B. And when, I mean, he didn't get a lot of attention in America, but he was heralded sort of all over the world when he cracked the code. And, and she basically, her story has basically never been told before this book. That's right. She, partly because she was a woman and partly because she was an American and partly because she died way too soon, she got written out of history. Uh, Probably inadvertently, but the upshot is the same. She was written out of history, and history, after all, is always written by the victors. So the decipherment of Linear B by Michael Ventris, a genuinely world-beating achievement, was for half a century this kind of British male triumphal narrative. And there was nothing extant to disabuse anybody of that notion, but in fact... As I had the privilege of learning from being the first journalist to have full access to a newly opened archive in this country of Alice Kober's papers, 
It was through her work and through her few published papers, which we know Ventris saw and read and digested, that the groundwork for his eventual successful assault on the script was laid. So it was truly she who basically posthumously handed him the key to deciphering the script. It's coming through now as you talk about her, but it certainly comes through in the book. You, you come off as very attached to her, like uh, very connected to her. And, and um, there's a lot in the book where I guess it's those papers where you're letting her sort of speak for herself. But uh, for someone who has been dead for over 50 years, uh, it seems like you have a really strong connection to her. And, and I wonder how writing obits for so long allowed you to connect to someone who's been gone for so long. Obit, you do have this intense communion with someone, and they're very often fascinating. They're very often compelling to you. But because the whole piece has to be done in a day, it's like seeing a, a sumptuous banquet laid out before you, and then somebody comes and snatches it away after you've had two bites. So here, writing The Riddle of the Labyrinth, I got to spend, for better or worse, six years really getting to know this remarkable forgotten woman. And that's a luxury that I'm never going to be afforded on a daily paper. Have you ever fallen for someone that you read, that you wrote an obit for? Like, do you kind of fall in love with these people a little bit? Because uh, uh, there are a couple that I read that were just like, they're so romantic, you know? And like the, the, the lives that people have led, I mean, the lives of people that people that get into the section, there are these like romantic, dramatic, adventurous lives. Do you ever get kind of like... Uh, you get like kind of caught up in them. You do get emotionally involved with people, even though, of course, as a journalist, you're not supposed to. But as a human being, how can you not? Uh, particularly people who had difficult, tragic, poignant lives. But there are also people that you just wish you had known. And the the kind of painful irony is you're only getting to know them by virtue of the fact that it's too late to know them. Right. And truly, the absolute best compliment that any obit writer can get from a reader is, uh, well, it takes one of two forms and either one is great. They'll say, I read your obit and I thought, gee, I wish I'd known that person, which is exactly the effect we're trying to achieve. And better still is they say, I read your obit and I felt I did know that person. Then we know we've done our job. You have this incredible way with your obits of, of sort of tying them up in a, in a bow, and I think you just did that, and now I'm talking over it, but I'm going to keep going anyway. Uh, yeah, one of the guys who, who uh, one of the people that you've written about that made me feel that way is that guy John Fairfax, who, like, rode across both the Pacific and the Atlantic, right, in a rowboat. He did. And, like, apprenticed with pirates. And, yeah, when I, when I read that one, it was just kind of like I fell in love with that guy a little bit. It just sounds, uh, he sounds totally amazing. John Fairfax was the man that every man wants to be and that every woman wants to bed down with. Um, <laughs> probably not married because I don't think he was marriage material. He he was a true life 20th century adventurer who was like a character out of Ian Fleming crossed with a character out of Graham Greene. He rode across the Atlantic by himself in a rowboat just to show he could. He then uh, two years later rode across the Pacific in a bigger rowboat for two with his then girlfriend and their romance actually survived this 8,000 mile crossing for a time. 
Uh, he did indeed apprentice to a pirate, which sounds like something out of Gilbert and Sullivan, but apparently one can actually do that if one has the right connections. <laughs> he was, for much of his life, he earned his living as a professional gambler. Uh, and he was... At the age of 13, uh, his mother had divorced his father and taken him to live in Latin America. He ran off to live in the jungle because he wanted to be a trapper of ocelots. He tried to commit suicide by panther? Jaguar. Jaguar. Uh, he, when he was about 20 and still living in Latin America, he he was just this romantic character. He didn't do anything by half measures. He had his first failed love affair. And, you know, we know how ardent one gets and how self-dramatizing one gets at 20. Well, he decided he was going to commit suicide by going into the jungle and provoking a panther, a jaguar, rather, to attack him. So what we said in the obit was at 20, he attempted suicide by jaguar. And that line was, I'm happy to say, went all over Twitter right away. That's amazing. Uh, you could, when you're reading that, you could just see like there must have, as you were doing, as you were reporting that one, you must have just been like, really, and that, and that, and that. Does it ever not pan out? Like, do you ever get an assignment and uh, you know the guy, the person did something quirky, he invented something, or came up with some idea or something, but it's really not all there all the time, and that's one of the great dangers of writing obits. Um, you have to check and verify absolutely everything, and usually on deadlines. So it can make for a pretty intense day. Uh, one of my editors said it best. He said, just because the family believes that granddad invented electricity doesn't necessarily mean that granddad invented electricity. And often, th- very often, through no intent to deceive, families will relate you these kind of half-truths that have trickled down to them in the oral culture of the family and never been questioned, because why should they be? So they'll say, yes, dad was at the Battle of the Bulge. Well, was he really? So all of this stuff, in addition to finding clips, printing out clips, speed reading clips, calling the families, you know, working the databases, working the phones, the most paramount job is empirical authentication. And um, with somebody with an outrageous character like John Fairfax, you think, how am I going to check this stuff? Fortunately, the ex-girlfriend with whom he rode the Pacific was still alive, and I called her up in England, and so she was able to confirm a great many things for me. That was a godsend. Maybe this was also a godsend. That Fairfax obit ends with, he died in Henderson, which is just outside Nevada, and he was gambling. He was playing, I think it was Baccarat. Yes, yes, it was. And there was you had this amazing line that was about how Baccarat's a game of sort of will but also luck, and, and um, it was perfect. It's like the perfect ending, the right. perfect kicker. That was his life in a nutshell. He wanted to be master of his surroundings, and to an extraordinary extent he was, but he was also a gambler, and everything. life was this great game of chance to him. You you find, seem to find those lines and those kickers and that that little detail at the end that kind of sums somebody up. Um, do you ever have to stretch for that? You can't stretch for that because it's going to show and you're going to betray yourself. I do love kickers, uh, and I think I love them both for prosodic reasons because it's this, as you say, it's a bow. It's this marvelous cup or container that ideally sums up 
everything that's gone before in the story and encapsulates the person about whom you're writing. So if you're lucky, you'll find the ideal quotation either from that person or from someone talking about that person or the ideal little anecdote or vignette or you can make the ideal observation. Sometimes the clips don't pay dividends in that regard and you don't have a good kicker. That you cannot fake. First of all, we're writing nonfiction, so for the obvious reason, you can't fake anything in a story. But you don't want to strain for effect. It's, it's as all the journalism textbooks say, you don't want to write writing because readers are smart and they will twig to it immediately. So worst case scenario, you can end an old bit the old-fashioned way. He is survived by his you know, 27 children and you name them all and then you're done. A lot of the times when I'm doing this podcast, I'm talking to people about how they interview and how they sort of connect with people and get them to open up. And I, I always feel like I'm getting coached on the interview I'm doing during the interview. Now I feel like you're coaching me on how to end this interview. Um, so here's my, here, here's my last question. Um, have you ever thought about your own obituary? Do I ever think about my own? No. And again, since every candidate has to be evaluated and vetted, there is absolutely no guarantee that I would get one, nor should there be. Marguerite Fox, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, everyone is listening. Go buy this book. Thank you. Well said. Go buy this book. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Thanks very much to Marguerite Fox for hosting me and getting the radio room at the Times. Uh, Hopefully this sounded a little better than our episodes normally do. Thanks to Tiny Letter for sponsoring us, and we will be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.